Good morning, everyone, or afternoon or evening, depending on where you listen to the podcast. I'm here today with Dr. Edward Plimpton. He is a clinical psychologist and an expert in anxiety and a multitude of other related disorders. He owns Your Anxious Child podcast, where he interviews experts on topics like these and more. Welcome to this special edition of the Writing Glitch podcast, the Emotional Kids Summit. As we head back to school, emotions are high. Some kids, both young and old, have difficulty managing them. We are talking this month with all kinds of experts. Look out for extra podcast episodes this month. Welcome again, Dr. Plimpton. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's it's exciting to be here too. How often do you do a video-based podcast? I do them about once a month. There you go. I've been doing a lot of webinar kind of stuff, but to do it like a podcast, I'm a little on the nervous side today. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about your Anxious Child podcast, what your business is, and a little bit about yourself. Okay. I am a child psychologist that have been in practice for years and a few years. that again? (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) I originally was trained as a primatologist. I studied mother-infant interaction in non-human primates and separation and loss, very much an attachment tradition. And then I retrained um, as a clinical psychologist and with a particular interest in early infant development and have worked in that field ever since. When my son diagnosed with OCD, I decided to shift the focus of my work to working with anxious kids because if he was going to be struggle with this condition, I want to know everything I could about it. And it turned out to be a good match for me. I am not necessarily a particularly anxious person, but except when it comes to watching scary movies where I always need a hiding blanket, but it was a good match for me. And I find it endlessly interesting and complex to understand. And then my podcast evolved out of a book I'm slowly working on, and where I've had the privilege to talk to a number of kind of experts in the field. And it's as much for my benefit as for anybody else's. It was a great way of getting through the pandemic was to be able to talk to a variety of people. And there's no commercial advertisements on the podcast. You listen to it straight through. And I have been lucky to get pretty much anyone who has anything important to say about anxious children on my podcast. I was listening to an episode this morning about reading. Oh, what was her name? It was only a couple episodes ago. Claire Rubman. Yes. Very interesting conversation. I haven't gotten to listen to the whole thing yet, but very interesting. I'm fascinated with the participation in reading and writing myself. It's it's a very interesting kind of phenomenon because difficulties in reading can stem from so many different factors, and the diagnosis of that can be complicated. And it's interesting because we're really seeing reading instruction catch up with the science of reading at this point, which has been so important. One of the reasons I was interested in reading is because when you're talking about anxious children in the elementary school years, one of the most important 
things a parent can do for a child in the elementary school years is to help them develop islands of competence, areas where they can feel competent and effective. And that can be a sport. It could be playing a musical instrument. could be in theater. There are many different ways of doing it. Or simply being a really good helper around the house. And that provides them with a couple of things. One is it gives them a way of defining themselves as a competent and worthwhile person when they have to struggle through the tumultuous years of middle school where children get basically addicted to popularity and do a lot of stupid things under the guise of trying to be popular. And being able to separate yourself a little bit from that and define yourself self-worth not entirely based on popularity can be a tremendous asset. And it's also important in terms of that these activities can provide a metaphor for other areas of your life. So that in sports or musical instruments, learning the value of kind of persistence and learning the value that through hard work you can become competent and learning to tolerate the discomfort of learning to get good at anything. Because as people frequently say, learning to cope with anxiety is learning to, co- to, to tolerate discomfort and to embrace discomfort, not to avoid it. Very, very interesting and very much aligned with the way I think as well. It's very interesting that you said that you started talking with and learning about primates and you transitioned to infants and then changed to the anxiety based on a family need. How much of what you learned working with primates transitioned to working with OCD and anxiety? Children don't have tails. That's a big difference. Okay. Um, they do. They're just inside. Okay. Technically speaking, from your evolutionary theory, I can see. I think a lot, actually. In studying infants and non-human primates, we're looking at kind of one of the foundations for mental health, which is attachment. And the nature of a child's relationship during the first three years of life with its caregivers sets the foundation for their subsequent mental health. Not in a deterministic way, because developmental trajectories are very complex. And our inclination towards health is redundant, and there's a lot of self-writing capacities in the human. Nonetheless, the the type of interaction that a child has with its caregivers sets a foundation and sets a bias in terms of what path you're going to go down. So that children who have a secure attachment in which they've experienced their caregivers as responsive to their needs and sensitive and attuned to their needs, have a better capacity to kind of weather the vicissitudes of life compared to children who have a more of what's known as an insecure or anxious attachment. It's not deterministic. Things can change, but it sets a bias towards them. And I think that is one important. In children with an anxious attachment, 
have a higher likelihood of developing anxiety in early adolescence and the like. Of course, there are other kind of important kind of factors that lay down the foundation for a child. One is broadly the concept of temperament. As any parent who's had more than one child, they know the importance of kind of temperament because every child just is different from the other one from day one. And there is a fair amount of kind of research documenting that children who are behaviorally inhibited, which is roughly about 20% of the kind of the population. And interestingly, that same ratio is true for non-human primates as well. You know, children who, in response to a new situation, are more shy and take longer to enter into a situation. Not entirely surprising, those children have a higher likelihood of kind of developing kind of anxiety kind of issues later on. And of course, then there are other issues as well that can play a role related to kind of temperament, but perhaps looked at from a slightly different angle are the issues of kind of sensory processing, how reactive our nervous system is. And the common examples of that are children who are unusually reactive to the tags on their clothes. But there are a bunch of ways in which in our sensory systems, the ways in which we take in information can be either under or over reactive. And, and that also is a condition where with certain sensory sensitivities, you can be more easily just overwhelmed by the world. Think about the child who's very reactive to noise. Then going to the mall becomes pure torture. And one of the kind of interesting kind of nuances of this issue of sensory processing has to do with the visual system. There are certain kind of people who over-register visual stimulation. And those are people who can't stand clutter. They can't stand uneven pictures compared to other people who probably under-register visual stimulation. I wouldn't know personally any of them myself, but, and that can often be confused with something like obsessive compulsive. And then there's an emerging area, which is less well-documented in terms of setting a foundation, which has to do with something known as the retention of primitive reflexes. And that's an emerging area, less well-documented, less well-known, but basically the idea is that you are born with a set of reflexes that help you survive because a newborn infant really can't do much in terms of voluntary movement. They're just there. And when we have a newborn, we're basically watching them breathe a lot of the times until they begin to do a social smile at two months or thereabouts. And But those should be gradually inhibited during the first year of life. And when they're not, I think the clinical observation and some research indicates that these are children who can be potentially at risk for a variety of learning issues, but also more predisposed towards anxiety. And I've certainly, uh, because you're built in with this automatic reflexive response to an event. And when I've certainly seen that in the clients that I work with that struggle with anxiety. Did you notice that the kids with anxiety and OCD symptoms have a higher Moreau or startle reflex than some of the other kids? I 
haven't been able to, you know, have the observations to document that. But from what I understand in the kind of the literature, that that is where you would be looking along with this what's known in the reflex known as the spinal gallant, is my understanding of the literature. But I'm not an occupational kind of therapist. I'm one step removed from that. But that would be the kind of speculation. That, that's what I'm understanding about the reflexes and the connections with the anxiety is that the moreau, the startle, and you mentioned the spinal gallant. There's also another one called the spinal parise. And the difference with the spinal parise and the spinal gallant is the position on their back One's up in the torso, the other one's in your lumbar. But they are both very crucial to the birthing process. Absolutely. These sort of considerations are important in terms of the treatment of anxiety. When you think about that, the treatment of anxiety is primarily driven by cognitive behavior therapy or exposure and response prevention therapy which has been proven to be very effective with the caveat that these are treatments that were developed with adults and translated downwards to children. And I do a lot of cognitive behavior therapy, and I certainly believe that in terms of dealing with anxiety, ultimately it's about learning how to face your fear and tolerate uncertainty. And absolutely in terms of dealing with something like Obsessive compulsive therapy, exposure and response prevention therapy is critical. But it's important to ask yourself the question about whether the foundation is set for these type of therapies that essentially require you, in so many words, to be able to think about your thinking, to recognize that intrusive thought that you're having, which is a hallmark feature of OCD, is junk mail. It's it's the brain bug. It's the worry monster, and so on, the, and to be able to personify that. It's interesting that you say that intrusive thought is like junk mail. I like that analogy. And with, of course, OCD, we experience it as unpleasant, and it's really junk mail. And the part with a kind of an anxious brain is that we have difficulty treating it as junk mail. The struggle is we treat all of those intrusive thoughts as, oh my goodness, that intrusive thought I'm having must tell me something about who I am or my secret nature or who I potentially could, could become. And no, in fact, there's really no difference between an anxious brain and a non-anxious brain in terms of the thoughts that pop into our head. We all get all sorts of wacky thoughts all the time. It's just the non-anxious brain, we're a little bit better at just saying, oh, whatever. And we can have a passing thought of driving through an intersection. Did I hit somebody? And with an anxious, with a non-anxious brain, you can just say, whatever. Nope. There's no body on the windshield. I'm good to go. Whereas a very anxious brain would be inclined to kind of go back and check to make sure and get caught in that awful kind of loop. It's important to ask whether there's a foundation is there kind of to engage in these things. And otherwise, the treatment is going to be less successful. These are considerations of temperament, sensory issues, and so on, are all important in terms of what's the foundation, because development fundamentally builds upon what happened before. 
And we need to look at the kind of foundation to make sure, you know, that there's the, the requisite skills to engage in, for example, thinking about your thoughts, stuff like that. That's important. And, and that also becomes important because in general, in the world of the treatment of anxiety, we've got lots to say about lots of ways of helping children from roughly the age of seven on up, but not so much to help with preschool children. Not so much. Not as well articulated. And that's because certainly the interventions need to be quite different. They really need to be play-based. You know, for example, Common kind of stressor for children is getting vaccinations. <laughs> and I laugh because I'm terrified as a kid of vaccinations. Yeah, it's of course one reason people develop a fear of vaccinations is because unfortunately they may have been held down to get a vaccination. And if you want to create medical trauma, then you hold down a young child, three, four, in order to get the job done, get the vaccination done. That is a terrible mistake. And it just sets a child up for a lifelong kind of hesitancy of getting vaccinations. And consequently, a hesitancy in terms of how they approach healthcare as an adult with those kind of early kind of experiences. What we want to do is from an early age, engage children in playing about vaccinations. We want to get out those dolls and practice giving them kind of vaccinations and shots and getting out those medical kits and playing, pretend going to the doctor and doing that before the visits and, and the like. And taking a cue from programs like Daniel Tiger and their nice little programs about vaccinations and stuff like that. And when you do that, children process everything they do through play. So whether it's going to the doctor, or whether it's feeding baby dolls or whatever, they process everything through play. And as parents, in terms of dealing with challenging things like getting vaccinations, we really need to kind of encourage them to engage in kind of that play and go along with that. And when we can do that, you can be amazed at how well children can do. As we're heading back to school, is there anything that you can share that can help teachers, therapists, anybody in the school system help these students as they're transitioning, anxious for a new school year, or somebody who's been in the system who it knows that learning is a challenge? Do you have any suggestions for the teachers and the parents as and the therapists as we head back to school? You know, one thing I think it's very fundamental, but we need to keep coming back to is just the venerable analogy of the airplane and when the face mask come down to put the oxygen mask on your face first before helping anybody else. We need to first pay attention to our own physiological state. And if we're not calm, we're not going to help anybody else feel calm. We, we need to be a stable anchor. Secondly, we so often run the risk as parents, 
teachers or therapists, is when there's an urgency to the situation, we get caught up in the urgency of the situation and we jump too quickly into problem solving. And when your child is having a big reaction, they're overwhelmed. And I think the first thing we need to do is to slow down and and not treat it as an urgent situation. For with children who are hesitant to go to school, Mm-hmm. I, had I had one of those, one that would not adjust time. Even if the bus was at the other end of the block, he would not move any faster. So I think there are a couple of things. One is to clearly set the agenda that this is a have to and you're going to school. Second, though, is to try to take away the urgency of the situation. And this is it's complicated in terms of striking a balance between we know to go to school and work the effect and we can take and we're going to take as long as it takes to get there to try to n- not rush i often will have children who are hesitant to come into my office they're anxious to come in often when i say to them in the office your mom will be in here we'll be talking take as long as you want and when you're ready come on in and in general Children always come in within 10 to 15 minutes. They have that initial kind of adrenal cortical surge to a new situation. And just like with a panic reaction, which tends to an intense surge of adrenal cortical hormones, and that generally can dissipate within, as a ballpark estimate, 15 to 20 minutes. And if we don't add to the excitement by creating urgency, then they'll calm down. First, I would recommend is that just because there is a problem, don't jump into problem solving right away. Just give a time to connect with your child and to really just first try to empathize with them. A quote that's been attributed to Teddy Roosevelt was, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And Unless a child feels that you understand how they feel, then they're not going to listen to anything else you have to say. They're just going to say, oh, you just don't understand. Or, oh, okay. And it can be rather um, simple things like, that's a scary thought. Or, oh, do you need more time? Or, boy, it must really suck to feel that way. Or simply, how can I help? I can see this feels like too much. There are many variations on that but just trying to connect with how they're, and to do that first, and to do that first. And and to remember that your child wants to become a competent. So that's one set. And then of course, when we have more complicated situations, the parent really needs to de- develop an alliance with the school, and it really needs to be a working collaboration between the parent and the school. And um, that is so critical so that there is some flexibility in terms of how we kind of solve this problem in terms of getting a child to school. And it requires flexibility and a lot of collaboration because we're balancing, of course, that perennial challenges, parents and caregivers, between we don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill, but we don't want to ignore and minimize the struggle for a child who may not be able to put their feelings into words. 
and to force something on them. We're constantly, and it's very hard to read at times a child's nervous system to know how much to just essentially encourage them to jump into the deep end of the pool as opposed to when we need to kind of give them more time and sense of care. It, I can see that being an issue when you have 19 kids in the class and kid number 20 is, wants to go off in his own world and you're trying to figure out how to get them out the door to, to go to music or where have you. I can ma imagine that frustration for a, a teacher not knowing what to do next. Absolutely. Teachers who we know are vastly underappreciated and under fire in our society, unfortunately, have such a challenging kind of job. And I think our question is really how can we kind of support these teachers in their kind of challenging job? Yeah. And, you know, and of course, then there are other, other kind of techniques in terms of helping a child, particularly younger children, in terms of being that transition to school. For example, having the, a kindergarten or first grade child or even like a preschool child who's struggling to maybe write a letter to their parents about how, with the help of the teacher, to write a letter to their parents. And as well as obviously having pictures of the parents available and kind of things like that. And of course, we're always interested in, is there initial protest about being in school? Is that something that can kind of resolve itself within 10 to 15 minutes as they get used to school? Or is that something that kind of persists through the day? And certainly when it persists through the day, that's more cause for concern. And that requires some additional thought. And that's where the collaboration between parent and child is so important, a parent and child. Parent and teacher is so important so that you have a sense of where, what is the trajectory of your child's kind of distress and the, and the like. You keep talking in a roundabout way about my second, my son, and he had such a difficult time going to preschool. He's had such a difficult time expressing emotion. He's had difficult time in school in general, but yet he was a gifted student. Can't express his feelings. And I keep hearing everything that you're saying revolving around that. And today he's very anxious and withdrawn from the world where he is in his own world and and it's hard to break through. Raising children is really challenging. I feel for you. It's so challenging. There's one just a additional kind of thought I had to follow up on what we were just talking about, if that's okay, that's which fine. is children's capacity to integrate their experience is emerging. And one of the things that they can have is, to use a phrase by Lynn Lyons, a positive amnesia for success. Say that again? They can have a positive amnesia for success. Okay, can, explain that. <laughs> they can have a great day at school, and you can ask them, how was it? Terrible. <laughs> okay. They have trouble holding on to the fact that it was hard at first. And then they got involved in the activities of school and they had a great day. They can have trouble really learning from experience that they, that they were successful and integrating their experience. Oh, when I did that, when I got involved with 
with playing Foursquare before school or whatever it might be, that I felt better. And they can really benefit from some help and just helping them integrate those two parts of their experience a little bit more, which is why parents are often referred to as an additional frontal lobe for their children. Okay. Do these kids with things like OCD and anxiety have a big, a high correlation to time blindness? I asked this question because both of my kids are like oblivious to time. There is certainly a correlation. All of these things tend to keep company with each other, you know, these disorders. And with OCD, I believe there's about a 30% overlap with kind of ADHD. There's certainly kind of comorbid. And along with that becomes kind of struggles with kind of a sense of time and the like. Yeah, but these disorders, they tend to keep company with each other. And they're often, comorbidity is more often the kind of rule. And that becomes an actually important in terms of kind of helping our children to ask ourselves at a given moment, speaking of disorders as if they're people, externalizing, so to speak, to ask yourself, who's talking right now? Is it the OCD? Is it the ADHD? Who's talking right now? Or is it the sensory kind of issues? Because depending upon who's really talking in a manner of speaking, then that kind of determines a little bit of how we're going to proceed. So with kind of problems with time management, there are, at the simplistic level, a variety of kind of little timers that can be helpful and external kind of prompts that can be helpful in terms of managing kind of time. Whereas if it's caught into an anxious kind of OCD loop of I've got to tap the doorknob a certain amount of times in order to get that just right feeling or to make sure nothing bad happens, that's a different level of kind of ways in which time can get consumed. Yeah. Asking yourself the kind of question, hmm, who's talking right now? I think that's going to be a little tip for teachers. Who's talking right now? Right. And really being able for them to have the awareness for the child who's talking right now. I like that. Yeah. So, and it's certainly important with kind of more kind of complex kind of issues in terms of, uh, uh, you know, because certainly, for example, sensory processing issues can often look like traditional psychiatric kind of disorders. And what we're really dealing with is a sensory system. That's either overwhelmed, over-registering stimulation, or under-registering kind of situation, or stimulation. That a child who is kind of crashing into you all the time or giving you kind of death grips, maybe a child who under-registers kind of their sense of their body in space, or what's known as proprioception. They need kind of extra input. And we'll have a lot more on sensory processing over the rest of the summit because we have some really cool sensory processing occupational therapists coming on board to talk a little bit more about that. But we are coming to the end of the episode. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience before we go? Let's, you know, just if we could take a slight departure and just one of my favorite kind of interventions for anxious kids, 
because mm -hmm. anxiety shows up at nighttime a lot, is I recommend to a lot of people, particularly elementary school children, that they build at nighttime a worry motel. I don't know if you can kind of see the see this I can or not. see the worry motel. All right. So with the worry so motel. For those of you who are listening to this and only have the audio, he has a box that he got from Amazon and he put a very raw, simple uh, image of a house on the side of the box. Right. At nighttime, we know that anxiety loves to show up at nighttime because Sally or Joey finally does not have any distractions and it can give worry all. It's open to hear every scary thing that worry has to say. But nighttime, what we want to do is we want to build a worry motel. And we want to, with the help of your parents, you want to write down or draw your worries and put them into the motel. Okay. Now we know about worries that they do not cooperate. They definitely have a serious listening problem. So we need to get some people to help guard or protect the motel and to keep them, tell those worries to get back in the box. I just happen to have my old buddy Softy here and Molly McIntyre, an American Girl doll, my favorite because Mary Molly McIntyre loves to play tennis and she has glasses and so do I. In any case, there or Batman or whoever you've got, we want them to sit outside the motel and tell those worries when they pop out and try to bother your child, hey, worries, get back in the motel, okay? Now this, very importantly, we need to emphasize to your child is not magic, it takes practice. And we wanna make it very clear that there's no presto change or magic here, that it takes practice. Um, because so often children in their anxiety will say, oh, I tried that and yeah, it didn't work. Okay, no, we really have to practice this like all skills, okay? And emphasize that it takes practice for those worries to listen and to recognize that it'd be better to just stay in their box and watch the flat screen TV that they've been generously provided in this nice worry motel and not come out and bother Joey or Sally. But that's a practical thing that I actually really get a lot of mileage out of. And you can- I love it. I love it. I love the, that you're utilizing the the teddy bear and the doll and helping the kids see those images that can help them. Do you ever encourage the kids to bring their favorite toys along with them for your treatment sessions? On occasion. They're often coming from school, so it's uh -huh. practically not so easy to do. Because we try to break that bond a little bit with school so that they're not needing in it in school as well is there we talk about the the worry motel but i thought you told me at some point that there is a video about the worry motel oh yes on my on my website i have some i have both a written explanation of the worry motel and also a, a video demonstration of it as well on my website and we'll make sure that we put share that in the show notes and there was one other that you had talked to me about before we got started recording, and that was something about a finger and a countdown. What did you call it? The magic finger countdown. Oh, that is another nice kind of technique. It's from a book called Scaredies Away. And my apologies, I'm forgetting the kind of authors of the, those two books, but the book is entitled Scaredies Away. And 
I like the technique that book like because it's very portable and simple. When you have a kind of a, an anxious kind of feeling or say before school or something like that is to say, put a hand on your cuff wherever you're feeling your worries and with your excellent imagination, pretend that you're sending all of those scary thoughts up your arm and into your fist where you are holding a squeeze ball or a piece of paper. And with your imagination, squeeze all of those scary thoughts into that stress ball or piece of paper. And when you've got as many as in as you can, then we want you to go five, you know, with your fingers, five, four, three, two, one, and then blow away the rest if you can with three breaths. Okay. Love that. Um, Love that. There's a technique for you to teach your kids in school, and it's to take your worries and put them in the ball and blow the worries away. I think that might be a really good technique for the teachers to use this coming year. Thank you so much for your time. And wow, what wisdom that you have to share. Dr. Plimpton, it is great to have you here today. Thank you so much. And I look forward to learning from you again in the future. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to listening to the other people on this webinar. Thank you so much. Yeah.